Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today we are speaking with Seb Lavoie. Seb is a life coach, trainer, and scholar, and he's a sought-after performance coach, guest, and motivational speaker who spent 23 years of combined service in the military and police with 16 years spent in tactical operations. This episode is so freaking powerful. I'm just going to say it right now. Seb and I connected on a podcast literally 24 hours before we recorded this one. I knew, heard part of his story and went, wait, we have to have a conversation. So a lot of what he talks about today is how all change starts with taking ownership first. It always starts with ownership first. And when you hear his backstory, it makes that even more powerful because Seb shares his story of growing up with many stories of adversity and challenges and with a very young mother who did set him up for succession planning, which I love how he described, personal responsibility and ownership, as well as the exposure to the concept of teamwork. This led Seb to building so much resiliency, unwavering determination, and this helped him to build the skills to become an elite tactical operator on a full-time SWAT team. He achieved the rank of Sergeant Major and notably as the first visible minority to do so in British Columbia. Seb's journey of turning trials into triumph serves as an inspiration to others who may face their own battles. And when you hear the stories and the adversities that he walked through and his perspective of how it shaped him into who he is today, you're going to love it. You're going to absolutely freaking love it. Welcome to the show today, Seb. I am thrilled to have this conversation with you. Happy to be here. So we just connected 24 hours ago Uh on another podcast, and I heard you speak, and I was like, hmm, follow your intuition here, Marsha. I think you need to reach out and see if you can connect to bring you on the show, because I there's so many things that you said that hit home. And then when you combine that with your story itself, I think there's so much value that you'll be able to share with others. So tell us a little bit about who you are today and what you do. And then we're going to dive into your story. Sure. So my name is Seb Lavoie and I'm, I am a performance coach. I do a variety of different things. I do what I like to refer to as meaningful things with meaningful people is all I'm after. (laughs) And so, and so, you know, that's a pretty, a pretty broad umbrella. Uh, I have a company called Raven Strategic. I do performance coaching, but I also do a lot of security work. So overseas security work in war zone area, you know, in, in conflict areas, I should say, not all of them are at war. Um, I do teaching, so leadership primarily. I have a bunch of 
different leadership courses. I have public speaking courses. I have uh, security consultancy sort of, um, you know, uh, side to the business. And I also I'm finishing a master's of international security, global counterterrorism. So I'm almost done now. And uh, hopefully I'm going to roll right into a psych PhD after. So I'm, <laughs> you know, just because. Just because yes. a psych PhD after. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell people again, you're finishing your master's in international it, international security. Okay, international security. Mm -hmm. I mean, incredibly important um, area. Can't even imagine what that's going to add to your repertoire of what you're mm -hmm. doing and offering out there. So your person, I listened to a podcast with you yesterday. You're a person who speaks a lot of the language that I love and believe in in this space of, you know, owning your choices, own your life, taking full responsibility for where you're at, not playing a victim card. We all have victim cards. I'm just saying that, but living in that victim space, right? You spoke very openly about that. That is something you're quite passionate about. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Is that like a big core part of how you coach, how you speak, what you do, your core message? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's essentially the first introspection that we launch into with my clients mm -hmm. is going internal. I mean, we we always can find reasons to go external and to look at what are the external factors that are affecting our decision making, but are affecting our lives or are affecting our reactions to things are affecting our demeanor to a certain extent. But very few people say, maybe it's me. And let's dive into that because maybe it's me is not necessarily healthy. If you're taking everything that, you know, happens in the world and you're projecting it onto you as if you are the cause of it with that mindset, not necessarily a healthy process. But if you're saying, could it be me? Is there anything that I can do better? That's a very different question that you're asking now, right? And that little subtlety is, 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 is important is important one of them is very self-deprecating with the other one is 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 sort of you're conducting detective work now mm -hmm. you know within the confines of your own persona so that you can establish some of the behaviors that you have are creating issues in your life and this piece on maybe it's me when i think of this like one of the things i talk about regularly is this piece that you know as humans, we are quite self-aware of what we're doing that's not working. We don't like to admit it, but we are quite self-aware. We know what things are not helping us. The challenge being that it's also a very slippery slope to drop into shame and that self-deprecation, which only keeps us there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, humans are creatures that operate in, in, in spectrums that are generally excess. So it's all white or all black. So if something doesn't work for me, I'm going to go the complete opposite, you know, and that is not how you problem solve things. That is not how you can make meaningful changes and realize which of those changes contributed to make you, to making you better because now you're, 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 you're wanting to do everything different or you're wanting to go the, the complete opposite. And so for me, moderation is generally the key. Right. So when we are looking internally, when we are. And so if you have very, very strong feelings about what you are thinking about or what you're contemplating or or the introspection that you're conducting, you're probably going a little hard in the paint, so to speak. You know, just having grace is still important. So I can go after myself relentlessly and have grace for myself as I'm doing it. It's not just I'm going to go after myself relentlessly and not cut myself any slack. Mm. 
That's huge. That is like a huge perspective shift, which I find really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And so like, this is not like you grew up with a, an experience, a number of experiences that could have led you into a completely different mindset frame, like a completely different mindset frame. And quite easily, it could have. And so tell us a little bit about how you, some of your circumstances growing up. And I want to dive into like, where did you see yourself making some of those mindset changes? Because that's, it's a big part of your story. Yeah, it sure is. And 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 I don't want to make it sound like somehow the adversity I faced as a kid was, you know, horrible or anything like that, because there were horrible events. But also, there was a constant there, which was at least a loving mom, right? Like having a loving mother. So I can't I can't be here saying, you know, everything in my life was was horrendous, because it's a huge disrespect to her. It's not an accurate dis- depiction of how I grew up. But there were there was a lot of adversity in my life. And this is a byproduct of, you know, being a biracial kid in the 70s with a mom that was 15 years of age and wasn't very popular, you know, in, in the circles and anywhere for that matter, especially in, in Montreal in those days. And um, and you know, there was a lot of adversity over the course of the next, say, 16, 17 years, where um I would say, you know, my person, like my me personally, was the epicenter of that sort of um, difficult time. Like I was in the middle of that. Like it was me as a person, not so much my actions, not so much what I did to others, but who I was. You know, the and that really hits hard when the questioning of or when the the adversity is coming by way of people not being accepting of who you are without even knowing you on account of you know the way you look or the way you you speak or the fact that you are different that you are maybe a little bit quirky or those types of things and so there was a very tumultuous times when mom was pregnant and my grandmother was a schizophrenic and she was an undiagnosed schizophrenic but she was undiagnosed for the majority of her life until much much later in life and um you know she did not take kindly to the the to mom's pregnancy and and there was a, an attempt on mom's life with you know my grandma and her and a, and a butcher knife and an episode running around the kitchen table you know so as a kid within the confines of that womb with my mom and the the terror that that should have been or would have been going through her veins, you know, obviously th- that doesn't sort of just go away. Like there is an experience. It is a very interconnected experience here. And so when I came out very, very young, I was exhibiting a lot of protective mechanisms. I was exhibiting like a lot of protective, protective behaviors. And, um, and I, you know, I credit part of that to an event that was, uh, you know, a triggering event, so to speak. And so that is how I came to be. But then after that, you know, I still had a mom that was 15, 16, 17, 18, and she had to work two, three jobs. I had two sisters, you know, by the time I was, I want to say, what, seven, six or seven, I had two sisters. (laughs) I get, I get all mixed up at the times. And, um, and, 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 you know, I, I was responsibilized as a very young age to, cook the meals and 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 help my sisters and do all this stuff. So by the time I was nine, I would jump on the subway with my sisters, go to the grocery store, grocery shop, come back home, cook dinner, put them to bed, wait for mom, you know, those types of things. And so 
that was a great exposure. It wasn't, a, you know, probably a undesirable exposure because you don't know. It's either it makes you or it breaks you as a youth, you know, as somebody's is this young. But then in the midst of all that, there was a, a you know, a, a very, very sort of, I would say, mm, there was a constant and that constant was bullying. Right. And I was, I was, I was bullied extensively as a kid in, in the context. And it wasn't just the kids, you know, I remember, and I, I told the story a while back, but it, it just surfaced a while back in my head. I was in school and, um, you know, there was a sort of a, a, a ball being played with, and there was some, some kids that used to terrorize me during, you know, recess or whatever. And one of them came over and, and, and kicked the, the dodgeball in my direction. And I, lifted my knee to protect my myself and it bounced off my knee and onto a little girl's nose mm. so it was it was purely accidental uh, obviously and 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 but the teacher didn't think it was and by the time i was inside on all four getting hit by all the kids because she had given him permission to come and get some payback so she lined up the lined up the kids to come and give me you know a blow you know like a, a punch or a kick or whatever so i ended up essentially having nowhere to go, having no shelter, because the the people that were supposed to protect me were partaking in the in the in the bullying. And so my story of bullying is is quite serious. You know, the, there was some severe beatings, there was some there were some gang beatings, there was all kinds of stuff. And most of it was was due to me being different. That that's it. And I'm not suggesting that I don't have a big mouth, you know, <laughs> because because mom was always teaching me, like, it doesn't matter who you speak to, as long as you are respectful, you're entitled to tell your side of the story, you're entitled to, you know, have the conversation. And so I really did that. But I also wasn't at a time in my life where consequential thinking was always, you know, there, like, maybe I should not say what I think here, because there might be a beating coming out. And so that's kind of how I grew up. I've been through 11 elementary schools as a, you know, in a, a starting in kindergarten. And so every year I never finished a year in the same school. So it was always like I would get, I would get bullied. I would get, you know, I would, I would be engaged with the kids. Eventually I would kind of make a few friends or whatever. And boom, it was the carpet was pulled from under my feet. And I was out in another school somewhere again, coming mid midway through the year and trying to establish myself as somebody that people should respect, you know, and it just didn't work. And, and, and yes, I made friends everywhere I went because it's, that's always the case. You always kind of make a few friends, but overwhelmingly my story of my youth story in the context of school was mostly me in sheer terror, you know, fighting and getting beatings and, 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 and hiding and trying to find alternative ways to get home. So I wouldn't get beat up again. And so all of this was a massive, massive um, amount of life changes that are directly correlated to this. I mean, I don't need to be an expert to know that it's 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 evident. But here's the key piece. So I like I, there's a story that I haven't told many people, and I and I just, but I contemplated it recently. So there was a a, a kid who called himself a friend of mine and we were hanging out together i really cared for him a lot and i believe this to a certain extent he did but he was very lost and uh his mo was to punch me in the gut as hard as he could from time to time to keep me on my toes kind of thing you know and i used to 
fold in half and literally lose my breath for like 45 seconds to a minute until I was, you know, blue in the face and I would get up and I'd be nauseous and all this stuff. And he was doing it repeatedly and he generally would do it in front of people. He would do it in front of people so that it would send, you know, some sort of message that it was cool, whatever was going on through his kid's head, right? But what happened next is what's is is what's important. One day, about two years later, he came on to me as hard as he possibly could, and there was nothing. It was done. This no longer hurts me. Like my body, my body physiologically adapted to the demand of getting, you know, of getting punched in the gut to the point where it stopped me from feeling it. It it put abs in places where you know, there wasn't any, it, it engaged my core at the right time. It engaged my, and so that was a big revelation for me. I'm like, wait a minute. You mean all these beatings made me stronger? I was about, I was about 11 when I came to that realization. So what do you think that says about discomfort? Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting anybody goes out and gets beating willfully. <laughs> But, but that was the first time I was able to, to thread, you know, so to speak, like the, the fabric of this, of this story of mine. And it had a lot to do with the adversity that I faced along the way and those, those realizations. Now, there's one more thing I'd like to tie into this story. Absolutely. And that's just um, the need for anticipatory reward. So one of the things that was really, really powerful when I was younger is my mom was extremely, we didn't have money, obviously, right? She, we, we didn't have money. We didn't have anything. I couldn't, I didn't have any physical possession. I had a lot of good, you know, loving relationships, those types of things, but I didn't have anything physical, which is funny because I still don't care about physical property. So, you know, it taught me a lesson there, but, uh, but, but um, what used to happen all the time is regardless of what we plan or what we did, there was always an interference because mom was working three jobs, because she was a single mom, because I didn't have a dad, because there was no male figure in the picture whatsoever. Any, anybody to model, you know, against or anything like that just wasn't there. And what used to happen is I used to get very, very excited about everything all the time. And, but I used to get majorly disappointed. You know, because that was the that was the way my life went. It was really excited about some a prospect of something coming up and a disappointment, right? And eventually, the same thing happened. Then what happened with the punch to the gut? My brain stopped caring. You know, it literally and and this wasn't like a you know some people like to dive into you know this is a trauma response and all this stuff. Cool cool story but i can all i can tell you is that for me that was liberating i'm like you mean i don't need things like if i if i really look forward to something and it doesn't happen it's not the end of the world what a great gift to have you know and so and so very very young i switch my anticipatory reward needs and that's something that's never afflicted me ever again in my life ever and 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 literally i still to this day stoically will look at an, an event that's coming in the future or something that's coming in the future and i attach no emotional weight to it until it's done i'm gonna i want to say one second like thank <laughs> you i know no no i love this i love this thank you for sharing that because you could see how that tipping point your thought process could have gone one of two ways you could have literally gone one of two ways you could have become 
this shell of a person who it's like so protective that I don't feel anything. I don't have emotions. I don't connect. I don't care. You could have easily, easily gone that route. And it's interesting how your brain immediately went, okay, so I don't have to feel this level of like, as humans, we talk about this, we make this massive expectation. And then even if we don't reach it, but I find even a lot of people, if we don't even get like, people get very close to it, but they don't reach it. And it's like, everything's a failure. I've screwed up. It's all these things. We've attached so much meaning to it that we disregard all of the work that we have done. And I think that is something that we do a lot of. So I love how you shared that because that thought process could have gone many different ways in that time. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think if we dive deeper into this, you know, sort of um, from a, especially from a psychological angle, I mean, guaranteed having, you know, the love of a mom that was very dedicated to her kid, uh, being her first son, you know, all of this stuff was, a, was very much a strong contributor. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say that that's probably the beacon that directed my reaction, you know, so I, amidst all of what was going on, I mean, it's important to acknowledge how much power one loving parent can have, you know, on, on, on the kids and on their ability to negotiate life. And I wouldn't change anything about my life, anything. So powerful. And I, even just from listening to previous episode with you, as well as like doing my own little bit of a work, I love that you said beacon because beacon was something that came to me just in reference to your mom, like how strong she must have been. And as you just explained it though, I think this message is actually so relatable for right now for all those parents who are out there listening, trying to make every single piece of their child's life perfect that we're in this space that it, that's not what matters because, and I think that's a big mistake that a lot of people um, make this misconception, you know, our, I mean, our kids are learning through their adversities if we let them have them, right? There's this, we talk about um, helicopter parenting, but when we were going through a lot of our challenges, they called it lawnmower parenting. And I was like, what's lawnmower? And I remember the counselor saying, it's these parents who literally take the lawnmower and get rid of every obstacles before their kids even get there. Like we've completely cut them down so that kids don't have to embrace any challenges. And I, that's not setting them up for success either. So I, I thought of your mom and I thought she must have been such an anchor of strength for you. And then at the same time, it's not because things were easy. She was showing you like what you could do, right? You still, like you said, nine years old, going on the subway, taking your sisters, you know, making dinner, doing these things. Like that is not something that a lot of kids would have experienced, but you did that. And you still, like, it's still this piece that th you all had a role in what you were doing in order for your unit to function. Absolutely. It was, you know, it, it was in, 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 in no other terms, it was my exposure to teamwork, mm. you know? It, and it was my exposure to teamwork. I mean, how else can we call that? And I, I you know, I really like that you make an inference to uh, helicopter parenting because here's how this goes in our heads and this, how this doesn't make any sense and how a quick logical override can, can teach you a lot about the way that we were doing things. So I, this is what I do with my clients. Sometimes I go, do, would you consider yourself a successful person? Would you consider yourself somebody that's done good things in their lives? Somebody that's you know, contributed positively, collective, all of those things. And generally the answer is 
Yes, I believe I have done those things. I believe I can do better, you know, whatever, whatever. And so I go, okay, cool. How was your life? My life was riddled with adversity. Cool. Okay. So now what you want to do is to prevent your kids from experiencing all of that adversity to protect them. How is that going to make them you or close to anything that has it together like you? Well, the answer is it doesn't. It won't. It's going to make them very different from you. And, and, and it's going to make, it's not going to make them safer. It's going to make them worse. Right. Like, and so, and then the, the other piece to this was, this is one of the things mom had in her head, succession planning. Like she did, she legitimately did. She had succession planning in her head. How early can I make him capable of being without me? (laughs) No, it's so good because I think a lot of parents, like I used to say that you, like, they're not ours to keep. Mm-hmm. They're ours to help them function in the world. So succession planning, I've never seen, I've never heard it spoken that way. I love that. <laughs> this is my take on it. You know, that's probably not what she used as a word, but um, but but I but I love that. And 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 I'll tell you how early this started manifesting itself by the time because when I was really, really young, I had all the regular anxiety that's associated with being young and having a mom that you love, and especially if there's no father figure or anybody else in the house, then that person is your entire world. You know, so kids have a tendency to be very anxious about death and, you know, losing that parent. And there there would be some inter- like countless interaction in relation to, you know, what could happen, what might happen, all of those things. And I, I was harboring quite a bit of anxiety as a result of A, my situation on the outside of the house, but also just bringing this home and having the only person I felt really safe with, you know, potentially being the only one around me. So if something happens, then then what happens, right? And uh, and it's really interesting. At around 14, 15 years old, I was legitimately ready to move on. And by the time I moved out of my house, I was 16 years old, living in an apartment in Quebec. You know, it was cheap. So this isn't something that you could do here in Vancouver in 2023 or anywhere, you know, almost anywhere in in, in developed countries because we're paying astronomical amount. But uh, <laughs> we are. <laughs> but but at the time, you know, at a, at $150 a month in rent and whatever, at 16, I was out. And I was out doing the thing. And by the time I was 18, I was in the military. And by the time I was 21, I was in the police force. And you know what I mean? And so it was not only did the succession planning uh, uh, work, but it benefited me incredibly. Now, let's look back at those 11 moves, those 11 moves, you know, the school moves where I learned that I could be home anywhere I wanted to never grow roots anywhere. I didn't actually need that physical roots planted. And that led me to a life of, of adventure. That led me to a life where I was able to, I'm able to live anywhere. I will go live in Croatia right now. And I'll live in Jamaica. And I don't, you know, and yes, there's, you know, geopolitical, uh, you know, differences. And yes, there's safety considerations and all of those things. But the point I'm making is I can make home anywhere I go. I don't need the, 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 you know, the comfort of like my small confines or my, my, my area of exploitation, which is the place where I'm comfortable in or whatever. And so even when I look back now, it's like, well, okay, going through 11 schools really sucked, but I'm free. I am free. I'm not in a box. Nobody's telling me where to go. I can go wherever I want. Are you serious? 
even the fact, I love how you have spun that and how your brain sees it, which I think is really powerful because this um, ties me into thinking of, I, I hear it with clients a lot and I hear it with people in general, is this idea that safety comes from something outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. It comes from like, we're going back to external validation again, but how safety comes from outside of ourselves And I have one client in particular who literally lost everything in a fire, everything. And she runs, she's the breadwinner in the family, runs a whole business. They have a staff of eight kids under four years old, loses everything. And she is just showing up in the most like freaking powerful way right now, sharing her story. She's writing a book. And as we're doing it, one of the things that hit her, she was like, oh my God, safety came from within me because I had nothing. And she's like, do you think that's relatable? I'm like, relatable. Like, it's like incredibly powerful. But that's what you're saying. It reminds me of is like, we're all those moves, you could have made them mean something about you. And eventually the message that your body takes in is like, I am safe wherever I go. Like I am, I am free to go wherever I want. And I, I don't have to make up stories about what that time in my life meant. If, if you said to me, we are going to start you up all over again and you're going to dictate how you grow up. I wouldn't change a single piece of that, not a single piece. And the reason why I wouldn't change a single piece, not because some pieces didn't need changing, mm-hmm. but because I have no idea what made me me. You know, from a from a very yeah, exactly. It's like which which of those comp- components, and if I remove one, does it change the interaction with the other ones now? And I have a different reactions. Thank so, God. yeah. So you 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 know, like because because let's face it, like this stuff, this you know, neuroscience and psychology and all of those principles are a lot more complex than we give them credit for, mm-hmm. right? It's not simple, and so I would never jeopardize the person I became on account of making my youth different, right? But that's not to say that I will, I would, that I would let my kid be bullied to the extent that I was, for example, that is a no, no, because that can break you forever. And that can create, you know, obviously injury systems and all kinds of issues. And I mean, and so for me, yes, being bullied was different in the seventies. Nowadays, you're being bullied. It is a dangerous, very dangerous proposition. You know, maybe I was getting a beating, but nowadays that's not how kids are playing, right? And I say playing and re- with with all reservation. There is no playing out there right now. No. So it was about striking that balance with my girls. So I have four. I have well, I have four kids, but I have two two girls of seventeen, fifteen. I have uh, eleven a reconstituted reconstituted family. I have an eleven and uh, and a seven, and so girl and boy, and so I have three girls and one boy, and all at an age where you know we can have those conversations, and and they're facing adversity and they're doing certain things. So what I do is, and I like to call it, I monitor their adversity. <laughs> If that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Like, again, there's nothing wrong with the adversity. But I, I'm so glad you clarified that because I did want to say, like, for anybody who's listening who was not born in the 70s, in that time, like, what you're describing for bullying, that, like, teachers did it. Like, the, like you're, I mean, it was nothing to be hit by a teacher. Nothing. 
Mm-hmm. Nothing. I mean, I'm like, that is, it's mortifying what you went through. It really is because that could, that just wouldn't happen now without some kind of criminal charges that wouldn't happen. But to set the stage of what bullying was like then to now is very different. It doesn't mean it's less of an issue now. It's just different, right? Bullying mm-hmm. is different. So I love that you monitor that and you share those experiences with your kids and keep that open. So as you're in this space, I love how you talked about like exposure to teamwork with your mom, this succession planning as going out on your own at a young age, then going into um, police and you didn't just go into police. You did so much more than that. I'm not, I just want to, I want to emphasize this and share this. All of these pieces continued to stack up into, did you feel that, can I say that they led you into some of the work that you ended up doing? Oh, there's no question that that's the case. Yeah, there's no there's no question that that's the case. I think fundamentally, I was a very protective kid. Mm-hmm. Life made me more protective, and 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 life taught me some valuable lessons. And one of those lessons was, what if I could interfere with violence being perpetrated against others that couldn't defend themselves? Sort of in the same predicament I was in, and is there? is there a path for me to be doing that? And that sounds idealist. And it sounds like, you know, uh, some, some people might argue if you're, if you're truly, and my mom used to say that, and she was a psychologist, by the way, but uh, she used to say that she used to say, if you really, really resented violence, you wouldn't be in policing, you would be a monk right like you would do something that's that doesn't <laughs> and it was kind of funny it was kind of it, it led to some funny conversations because um i never actually considered being a monk <laughs> but but uh but 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 i could understand that so essentially what it did is it bred a capacity for violence under the right circumstances but an absolute inability to use it for the wrong purposes like in inability to do it and and i mean that respectfully during my entire service 20 years on uh, in the rcmp i spent 16 years in tactical operations i've been on hundreds and hundreds of tactical operation and i i have not in my entire service use a force that was excessive not once in my entire service that's never happened simply because i am not wired that way i can't i can't do it i can't become the thing that I pledge to interfere with. And there's there's not a single bone in my body that's never let me that's never led me there. Now, just to just to quantify that or to extrapolate on this a little bit more, there were times in my life where I wasn't nearly as put together, right? In my 20s. And as I came through the ranks and I was still, I had so much fire in me, but I sometimes didn't know exactly where where to direct it. And sometimes a few people got burned in the process, you know, and if you, if you don't heal the wounds, you're going to bleed over people that didn't cut you. And wow. that's, and that's precisely, that's precisely what happened for a period in my, in my life where I, I, I had a hard time controlling my temper. I had a hard time, you know, being the man showing up to be the man that I should have been all of those things, but those things were very temporary. And once I started, you know, realizing that they were going against the desired outcome, which was to be the protector, there was no way for me to hide anywhere. So exposing those shortcomings and addressing those shortcomings led me to be able to to optimize the person I was as a protector. Mm-hmm. I love how you said this. 
it also ties in back to me that this was very a very key point where you learn to take ownership, to be in radical responsibility for what you're walking through at this point. But it's you could have easily gone one of two ways, right? There's a fork in the road there. And I mean, there's a fork in the road throughout your entire life where you could have easily gone one of two ways. You could have gone into policing and been a very arrogant, angry, fire-driven, like, you know, rageful person because that's what you saw growing up, but you went the other way. And then you also, when you did waver, it was like, okay, wait, this is not like who I want to be. So I would love it if you can tie in there how you feel about being like living at cause, being in full ownership and not being a victim of your story. So here's how I describe victim mentality. This is kind of like you being in the passenger seat of a bus with no driver. Everywhere that thing wants to go or somebody pushes you or this other person interferes or the light changes or whatever it is that happens, you are going to be on the victim end of it. And, and you've mentioned this already. You can be a victim of something. There is no question that that's the case. You can be a victim of harassment. You can be a victim of violence. You can be a victim of gaslighting. You can be a victim of a million things. But being a victim and being in victimhood are two different things, right? So it's a, it, it's, it, that's, and being in victimhood is a decision. It is not accidental. And so, it may be a subconscious decision for some because they don't necessarily understand how the process works, but it is a decision. And so for me, I, I find that taking ownership for every piece that enters my life or every, every, everything that, you know, is a part of my life as even if sometimes I don't have ownership over them, is there anything I could have done for things to be a little bit better? And I'm not talking about going down the rabbit hole of like second guessing every decisions you've ever made because now you're overthinking about you. No, that is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is there anything I can do better to optimize me? Because if I optimize me in all these different areas of my life, it really doesn't matter what life throws at me. And that is an extremely liberating prospect. You know, and it's also that to understand that I feed into that growth mindset where I want to be a better version of myself. And people sometimes ask me, why would I want to do that? I'm like, I don't know. You want your life to be much better? I don't know. Just, you know, this little frivolous thing. You know, I don't know. It, listen, if you don't want your life to be better, I'm I'm good. We don't have anything to talk about, you know. Um, but generally speaking, and when people say that, if you say, okay, cool, I like I like where you're going with this. Um, if I offered you to be a an you know, what's your what's your favorite sport? And they're like, oh, basketball. So I go, okay, if I offered you to be an NBA player, but you you'd be a successful NBA player with the money that comes along with that and all the things that comes along with that, but you wouldn't have to do a single bit of work. I had a magic wand and I can make that happen. Do you want it? Yes. Okay. So you do want better. You just don't want to do it. Right. <laughs> and, and that's always a that's always a, a an interesting conversation. It's, and 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 so yeah, you know, I I believe that there's a few things in my life that have been more powerful than 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 most things that we can do for ourselves. One of those things is killing the victim, as I like to call it, killing the victim mentality and 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 accepting the prospect of death. 
if you it's, it's, so let's call a spade a spade every every fear we have as human beings is a downgraded version of the fear of death we're survival machines everything we do is magnified on account of survivability but it's a very conservative machine the line between being uncomfortable and dying are million miles apart but we don't see that we oh this is so dangerous and we realize that once you when we start sort of going down those uncomfortable roads we discover all the things that we need to discover about ourselves, but also we get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And so here's the thing that people don't talk about. It actually pushes that line. It mm -hmm. pushes that line. It pushes that survivability line. Let's take one example of this. Um, Mike Day. Mike Day was a Navy SEAL. And everybody knows, even if you're not familiar with the military, you generally knows just by sheer Hollywood, you know, that the Navy SEALs are, are, are an elite unit. They're trained really, really well, but they're also selection and their course training program is so difficult that when the guys are, are finding themselves in combat theater and experiencing hardship at an intensity level that most human would understand nothing about, they can make decision on account of the hardship they went through before. This is nothing compared to what I've been through, right? Mm -hmm. And one of those guys was Mike Day. He was shot 26 times, 16 times outside of his body armor. And so he was clinically dead on the spot, but somehow refused to and, and, and ended up, you know, dispatching four of his assailants and walking himself to the chopper you know, to go meet his team that I definitely thought he was dead. And so there's there's a sad twist to this story, which is, you know, last year, Mike Day took his own life and all this. There was a lot of issues there. But and, and as you might imagine, right, like he he, he was he was. Uh, but the point I'm making here is he did not accept death. No, I'm sorry. This is not happening here. So he accepted the prospect of it. But he also had conditioned himself and he was so inoculated that he had pushed the prospect of death. So when the doctor uh, sort of analyzed him and they they did all the work they do, they scratched their head and went, he, he died like four hours ago, but he just decided not to, you know, and they made a, a bit of a joke out of that. The point I'm making isn't go do things that are so difficult that you can get, you know, this is not what this is about. But what this is about is to actually show that not only is the body a very conservative machine, but we have way more power to interfere with whatever happens than we give it credit for. And this is just a very, very extreme example of that. Mm -hmm. There is so much power within us. There's so much power within us. I don't even know, like we're barely tapping into, I think majority of people are barely scratching the surface. And I maybe this is a leap, maybe it's not. If people are stuck in victim mentality, you're not being resourceful because you're not actually looking for a way out of something. So you're not even tapping into like victim mentalities, literally being no victim, victimhood, victim mentality. Victimhood. Both those things are the same. Yeah. Yeah. But standing in that spot, when you're in that victim space, like you are consumed by blame, like you're waiting for your life to change because everything else around you has to change first, right? You're the passenger on the bus. I love that analogy that is being driven by nobody. You're literally going everywhere. And so you're waiting for every single thing to change. So you're not being resourceful. You're not tapping into what you can do because you don't need to. You don't see that that's going to make a difference because you're stuck in victim mentality.
Absolutely. And and let's let's take this now and, and bring it back to the physical realm. So let's talk about self-defense or situational awareness, for example, right? Which are two very, very important piece pieces of, of somebody's sort of development. So self-defense in the physical sense, I'm less worried about. Not everybody has hobbies and everybody do the things they want to do and that makes them happy. And that in itself offset some of the risks. So we can't just discount that and say, no, you should be doing martial arts, right? For example. But imagine this, imagine if you don't have situational awareness, like you, you, or you refuse to see the world for what it is and, and to understand that you have a responsibility in keeping yourself safe and you don't want to learn about any of this because it's easier to put our head in the sand than it is to address it. And you are walking around in a world where you are literally at the mercy of anybody who wants to hurt you. Anybody, anybody between here and the mall can take your lunch money. Mm -hmm. I don't care how you assess your own capacity. I'm here to tell you that there is none. Like you are going to get, this is a tragedy waiting to happen, right? And so in the same way as, so now imagine you now are working out regularly. You're going to jujitsu, you know, twice a week, whatever. You're now, you know, a blue belt, you know, which is like the second belt after white. You know a little bit more you used to. You also did a bit of boxing. And you also really dive into the situational awareness piece to try to understand what you can do to make yourself safer as an individual on this planet. And that's just taking regular precautions, not being paranoid, not being in fight or flight. Like we're not talking about any of this. Yeah. But by elevating and by hardening the target ever so slightly, you made yourself a much less vulnerable person and how that feels. Okay. So now let's, let's bring that, let's bring that to somebody that used to be in a special operation unit who's now a pro MMA mixed martial artist, you know, and all this stuff. They're walking around. There is not a single human out there aside from somebody ambushing them with a weapon that can hurt them. Mm -hmm. Very liberating way to feel. Right. So there is levels to this, but you don't have to go to the eighth level because as soon as you go a little bit deeper than surface level, you're doing it better than 90% of humans. That, that That's really powerful. That's really powerful. And for anybody who's listening, like just really tune in to the fact that like you have more control in your life than you think you do. That is really the message that I just think is, is hammering home. You have more control than you think that you do, even when it feels like your circumstances don't. Like there are times, again, we're all walking through, some of us walking through really difficult times. And then it's like, okay, so what can I control? Like, what can I do? How do I respond differently? And when I feel like life is blowing up, I will literally stop sometimes when I feel the frustration boil. And it's like, what am I not doing for myself that I know I need to do? And I mean, the list is long. It's literally long. I look at it and go, okay, no one, you're not even giving yourself a fighting chance right now because you're not doing any of the things that you need to do for yourself to be able to handle this. So it's really is empowering when you can come back to that space of ownership. And you've done that so many times in your life. I would love for you to share your work history and mm -hmm. what you did. And I mean, some of the roles that you played, because I think it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, you know, I started in the military. So I started in the military as a stepping stone to go to policing route. So for me, it was always about police. I, I, 
I didn't expect to enjoy the military as much as I did. And and of course, that's at a time where our military was a lot different as well. So I just want to preface this. If you're considering service now that, you know, fire is hiring. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I used to um you know I I I was I was obviously attracted by the prospect of doing work in the military police realm I just didn't know exactly what but I I felt that I was attracted by that and one day I was driving with mom and we see this you know this biker gang and we see in Quebec it was a massive biker war you know like a, a very very serious war that was going on and the the uh culprits were on the ground and 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 a tactical unit was above them and and you know they were handcuffed in the back and these guys were whirling balaclava and all this stuff and i asked mom like who are they and she said those are the guys that aren't scared because everybody else is and uh because you know cops families were targeted and all this stuff and yeah. so they 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 put this 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 aggressive unit together called wolverine and they had you know officers that really didn't care they just was they just were wanting to get the job done so i said i want to be one of them and she's like well get to work you know, kind of thing. And that's where the the seed was planted specifically as it pertains to the tactical operation piece. But in order for me to get there, I needed to get into policing first. And so I went a military route because I wasn't very invested in studying and 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 getting academic degrees and papers and, and so on. And so I was falling a little behind as far as building my resume. And so I, I, I thought, well, I'm going to join the military. I'm going to get some valuable experience, all this stuff. And it obviously paid paid up paid out because I was able to you know transition straight from the military to the RCMP in 2001 so my first posting was Tofino on the Vancouver Island which for those of you who don't know is kind of like Hawaii but with war with cold water so if water was warm this would be a perfect spot to live <laughs> but it is I, I'm 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 kidding it is an absolutely beautiful spot but it was a very busy spot and we only have five members so we had to do a lot of the work by ourselves but what this allowed me to do is you know to go to the range to train other members to train physically because i had so much time you know to because i had no life i was i was there essentially learning policing becoming the best version of myself as i could in the policing context and preparing to go out in the world with the dream and the intent that i had to make it to you know a tactical unit a full-time tactical unit so after uh september 11 i joined a essentially a, a tactical a covert tactical unit that protected aircraft against hijackers and i spent four and a half years in the Canadian Air, Air Carrier Protective Program. So I spent four and a half years there and did a lot of traveling, did a lot of training overseas, did a lot of training everywhere. And I was just able to continue to sort of take the incremental steps that I needed to take to, to manifest my, my desire to be, you know, on a tactical unit. And so in 2006, I was able to go for selection and I was more than ready for selection because I'd been training for years and it, it wasn't something I needed to prepare for. It was something that was that needed to prepare for me. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't show up with that attitude, but, you know, in my mind, <laughs> inner attitude, like inner, 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 inner beliefs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep it quiet. But uh, but I, but I did that and I was I was successful in that pursuit. And right away, so selection went really well. And then I was on the course, you know, a, a few months later and I spent, you know, I can't remember what it was, like eight, 10 weeks on the course. And I, I you know, the course had a 50% attrition rate, maybe a little bit more than that. And I was just at home, super comfortable, good to go. And I think 
that is a telltale sign that you are doing what you ought to be doing. And I think we don't listen to this enough. You know, if you are doing something and everybody's stressed out of their mind and you somehow control chaos like nobody's business, you're probably the right person for the job. And what that did to me is lower the stress on my central nervous system during the course application. So all those benchmarks and all those things that I was engaging in were mere check in the box for me. Like I was already done in my mind, you know? And, uh, and I was successful in the course and I was, and then I went to a team in 2007, I was on the lower mainland district emergency response team, which is one of the busiest team in the country located in Vancouver. It's not Vancouver proper because Vancouver police has their own team, but everywhere else around the area is the lower mainland team that takes care of it. It's one of the busiest team in the country. And at a time where the team was at very busy uh, as well. And so within the within the seven year period, no, actually it was a little bit shorter than that. During a, f- a five year period, I you know sort of elevated from a, a contributing team member to a team leader, and I became a team leader. And in two thousand and seventeen, I became the overall team leader. Now I had twenty four people working for me, and I was responsible for daily operations. So I did that for you know two years. So I was a team leader for seven, and then the commanding officer of the province here, British Columbia, uh, Brenda Butterworth Carr at the time was looking for somebody different, somebody that had leadership chops, somebody that the troops would trust and somebody that she could trust to tell, to let her know when she's going off path or when she's going the wrong direction or whatever the case may be. And kudos to her for that, because a lot of leaders are not so open, you know, and, uh, and she reached into me and, and proposed that perhaps it was time to go from 24 to 8,200 people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just a little skip, you know, just a little, <laughs> a, l- a little bump. But the reality is in any position of leadership, you can affect strong, strong leadership directly over five people. Those five people are taking care of five and the other five are taking care of five and five. And this is how you lead in the decentralized command model. You don't try to lead 8,200 people because that's never going to happen. You're going to be completely disconnected. And so I understood that and it was no problem. I wanted to be the best version of myself so that I can help them, you know, in whatever, whatever it, in whatever area they needed help. And so for the next two years from 2019 to 2021, I was the, the divisional sergeant major, um, here in British Columbia. And I did that for the two years that I was in. I gave everything I had to it. And then there was a contemplation. Am I going back to the team? What else could I do in policing? And the answer was, actually, I want to try something else. Not because my career wasn't great, not because there wasn't a pension, not because, but just because I'm not being held hostage by anything. If I want to go somewhere and and do something and adventure in life, other than if I hurt a bunch of people on the way, because I'm I'm not addressing everything the same way. You know, in a professional setting, that's my way of addressing it. In a relationship setting, I would never do that, right? Because now there's somebody on the other side of it that's pain. Yes. But if I have control over what it is that I that I can do, and it doesn't impact negatively the collective, I am off to the races. I'm going to risk my own, you know, my own butt all day. Like I'm not worried about that. And so if it backfires, eh, so be it, right? But but it didn't, right? I left and I and I and since then I've grown exponentially since making the decision of leaving. 
Now, there's an important segue here because when I first took the job as the sergeant major for the division and I was given administrative tasks and things that are very convoluted and things that are very high level, you know, I I had to elevate my writing, my thinking, my processing, my my ability to communicate, like everything about myself. And it but also in realms that I was completely not necessarily familiar with. So I'd been leading tactical operations. I could lead tactical operations with my eyes closed. I still made mistakes and those types of things. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is I was at a level of competency where it didn't matter what you threw at me. I always was able to control chaos. All of a sudden, I'm getting administratively burdened and I'm stressed to the guilds, right? Like, I'm like, oh my God, like this is going to be. And so now what I had to do was to say, do not attempt to impose your competence on other people. Take your time and slowly build it one call at a time, one interaction at a time, one, you know, one thing at a time. And what I did find is that for a very, very uncomfortable spot that I was in, I incriminately got more and more comfortable with myself being in that role, with myself adapting to the new circumstances, which were a massive departure from my previous duties. And what that taught me was carried over when I made the decision to leave the force. So I guarantee you, if you took me straight from the team and said, would you retire right now? I, I never would have had the ability to do that. I never would have had the ability to do that because my brain wasn't there. My brain wasn't there to understand what I could or couldn't do, what my self-worth was in the relation to the new and the new experiences I was going to launch into, to my ability to negotiate things that were completely outside the realm of my expertise for me to be able to grow in that role. It taught me everything I needed to know. See you later. I'm trying something else. <laughs> Own been out like on your own for the last two years then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And then there's all kinds of medical stuff that happened. And <laughs> well, I was gonna go there towards the yeah. end. I was yeah. because I think that like you've definitely shared a lot of your personality, how you see things, the lens of how you see things, which I think is incredible. And it's pieces that like I do deep down believe our stories connect us. We can see and learn from others through our stories. And when I got to that point of the podcast, I was like, oh, just so nonchalantly what you're going through in the next month and your, how you shared it, I think was almost startling for her because you were, you had such a great perspective. So what's happening to you in the next month? <laughs> well, let me tell you, you know, tactical operation comes at a cost and the cost is generally, you know, injuries and things. So when I retired in 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 21 uh, shortly after I I had a bout of compartment syndrome following a a, a small surgery and the 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 compartment syndrome is essentially a sort of a, a medical syndrome a medical uh, sort of condition where your 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 muscles are outgrowing the fascia or the pouch that they're you know, in and to the point where blood vessels and nerves and things can be interfered with. And eventually this may lead to dying tissue, which is exactly what happened to me. I was in, I was in compression for about 26 hours. And by the time they opened my leg up, they, they, they performed a fasciotomy, which is opening, you know, the two sides of the leg so that the muscle may ooze out of there and, and use the space or have more space. Um, my muscle, my calf muscle on the left side was 
unresponsive. And so over the course of nine surgeries between August 21 to October 1st, 2021, I had uh, nine surgeries and all of those surgeries were debridement. So removal of dead tissues within the confines of my leg. And, and so what that left me is, uh, you know, a 10% of my calf muscle on the left side kind of deal, which all that entails, which includes the overcompensating and the pain in the hips and knees and things. And, and yes, just, just a, a lot. Right. And so, uh, after two years of, of uh, attempting to optimize recovery, because nerves are regenerating at about an inch a month, we, we let that go for two years to give it some time. But right in the beginning, I was ready to cut that thing off. I was like, let's cut it off. Give me a prosthetic. I'm going to go for a run, you know? And every, of course, thankfully, doctors and people with more professional and, and technical knowledge said, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to give you a chance to try to heal. And so I ended up, I ended up giving it two years. I ended up putting a ton of effort and and money in my recovery. And the money came from, you know, a GoFundMe that the members of the RCMP contributed to, and they literally saved, saved me, you know, because it was a big piece. And I used all of that money to create a system around me, a recovery system around me that I, a gauntlet essentially that I would go through every day to optimize my recovery. And after two years, I have absolutely very little functionality with that leg, but also I have a lot of pain, chronic pain consistently. And all the things that I would love to be able to do, I love hiking. I love hiking. If you take everything I ever did in my life, you can't take hiking. That's the worst, you know? And if I do, I will be watching traveling travel vlogs so that I can get my mind in. <laughs> yeah, I understand. But, uh, but, but so hiking, running, jumping, sprinting, all of those things that I did so well for so many years and took for granted to a certain extent as we, as we do, mm -hmm. um, now are the things that are meaningful are the things that I want to do. And so in conjunction with one of my surgeon, who's a former special operations surgeon, who's met people like me more than he would, you know, care to share, um, we've decided to do an elective amputation. So we're going to get this leg amputated in December, uh, lower leg, so transtibial, so mid-shin. Mm -hmm. And I have, as a result of my service, I have shoulder injuries as well. And so the shoulder injuries just got approved for surgery, each of them. So the left one is going first, the amputation is coming next, and then the right shoulder is coming after. <laughs> So suffice to say that I think I'll be reading books for the next six months. <laughs> Thankfully, I have a major research project to do, a bunch of stuff, you know. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Are all those three surgeries going to be done in the next six months? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wow. the plan. That's the plan. So my, my shoulder is going November 26th, which mm -hmm. is essentially next week, is it not? Or, yeah, or two weeks from now? Yeah, with less than two weeks. Yeah. And so, and and the plan is for the leg to be end of December, beginning of January, I believe. Wow. And then the next shoulder, we don't have a, a set date, yet. but you know, at, at least after three or four months, because that, that amputation is a big piece as far as recovery is concerned. I'm going to be three months to a prosthetic and then it's another three months to, you know, walking normally and having some sort of physical activity uh, level. Now I'm going to, of course, not do any of that. Like I'm going to work on the other parts of my body that are okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, cannot but. say enough how important that is because I, I mean, I spent 27 years as a registered kinesiologist, all post rehab work I would do. And so immediately when I heard your story, I'm like, oh, I could just picture that hip, that side, that shoulder, that back, like it's just the chain, it goes up. 
and what it affects. And I'm sure you're going to have lots of resources. I do know of somebody in particular I interviewed on the podcast, um, two prosthetics, and she is like a CrossFit athlete and trainer extraordinaire, an incredible story. And again, right, it's like just seeing we know lots of people who can do that and have done it, but they've taken the mindset approach of what, you know, this is this is the best thing for me. This is what I need to do. Because again, longevity, right? Like you're able to look at this and say, this is this is going to give me a chance to live the life that I want to live. Mm -hmm. There's a saying, I think it's Les Brown, and I love Les Brown. I don't know if you do, but one of the one of the quotes of his is most people die at 35 and don't leave until they're 65 yeah. you know because it's almost like there is a certain there's a certain time in people's life that the status quo becomes an acceptable place to be and that where you're looking at the prospect of of a future you really don't care because your life as you knew it was was in the past you know i'm no longer that person i'm just now i'm just aging and i'm just and we have all these monikers that we 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 self-impose on ourselves but um, but the reality is you have no idea if you will live one or a hundred years, like you simply didn't. And so you don't you don't do things waiting for the prospect of death. You do things as if you were going to live forever. That's how you address them, you know. But aside from the one piece, which is taking time for granted. So I am talking about what I am talking about is a specifically. Um, don't fear investing in yourself, like going back to school, doing those things because you're a little bit older, right? Because you don't know. And imagine if you could spend 40 years affecting others positively with the stuff that you've learned that you were going to put on the back burner because you're too old to go back to school. Inversely, we need we have a limited bandwidth and it's important that we control where our time goes. One of the ways that I like to exemplify this with my peeps when I run courses or things is, is simply this. You're being paid $55 an hour for wh whatever job you're doing throughout your career. And that's an acceptable thing because that's a socially recognized way of doing business. Take that hour and imagine that your seven-year-old has cancer and that's the last hour of her life. How much could I buy that from you? No. Okay, so why are we treating time like an expendable infinite well, whereas what we need to be doing is taking all the times that we want on the people that truly deserve it you know the people that that we select that are that are that are contributing to our lives that are that we contribute to theirs and it's a reciprocity and it's there's accountability there and you're getting your you're a better version of yourself around them i'll give them all the time in the world but you got to be careful because your own adversity is coming your 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 time is coming as you and you're going to need to have a bandwidth and if you've given your time at to everybody and their dog without any consideration, now you have to muster yourself and bring you back in a place where you can face what it is that's coming down your pipe. And that's also the important that's also an important piece when it comes to taking on the weight of the world. You are not carrying the weight of the world. The pain that's occurring somewhere else, it's okay to sympathize with. It's okay to do things if you have any sort any uh, sort of influence over it. But if it's outside your scope of influence, you need to let it go because you're going to have your own challenges coming in and you're going to need that energy. You're going to need that capacity. And so I digress. That's kind of where. <laughs> I feel like I could just let you go. I love it. Um, I think it's, I think I love everything that you're saying there. And I think this piece of, you know, there's times where 
we are really going to have to come back, tying this back to like ownership, like radical responsibility, taking control of yourself. We can be empathetic and we can be sympathetic to things that we are seeing. But at the end of the day, if the world is not getting the best of us because we're not giving back to ourselves, honoring ourselves, like, you know, whether it's growing personal development, um, intellectually, going back to school, whatever it is, if the world's not getting the best of us because we're not giving it back to ourselves first, then the world isn't ever going to get the best of us. And that is where like this piece comes back to. So I, I keep seeing this thread through everything you've shared on the power of, you know, radical responsibility and taking full ownership of your life, no matter what your story, you always get to choose how you respond. Yeah. Uh, the response to life challenges is all that matters really. But what's important to understand is life challenges do not stop. They don't. There, there is no end to this. They, and as you get older, they, you will experience more likely, right? And so having the ability to tie in meaning as opposed to happiness, right? If, I, if my end goal is to be happy all the time, you're going to fail that mission miserably as soon as something hits you hard enough. But if you are seeking meaning, and that is where you anchor your reward system, you can find meaning in the most catastrophic situation. Meaning is where I tie. Meaning is my anchor. If you gave me a boat and you said, here's the anchor, what is, you know, what is the name you would like to put on there? I would put meaning on there because that's what anchors the rest of those behaviors that we've spoken about today. And you can choose what that meaning is. If you're back in victimhood, that meaning is very different than if you're like, okay. And, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, this is happening for you. I don't actually love that saying, to be completely honest, because when we were in a really tough space, a lot of people would say, well, this is happening for you. And I'm like, really? Like, that's a nice thing to say when a person's low. Mm -hmm. It's almost eliciting a little bit of shame that I should be grateful for it. But now when things happen and I feel like that, I often look at it and go, what is this teaching me? Like, what is this asking me to level up and do? Like, what can I do with this? And it just opens up again, out of victim mentality, it opens up expansively thinking of, huh, maybe this is actually meant to teach me something that I can do something with it. Sure. Or maybe here's an opportunity to find something to do. Yeah. Here's an opportunity to do something I've been procrastinating on. Yeah. Here's an opportunity to finally do something I know I should have done for years and didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, and and all of those things are massive opportunities and opportunities for growth, opportunities to be a better version of yourself, opportunities to transform everything. I've watched a 70-year-old start training with the right, you know, trainers and and do all the things and run our first ultra marathon. So that's an ultra, 75 years old, right? And she just, she didn't train for the better part of 30, 35 years. But, but, but you know what led her to do what she did? She just didn't care. Let's go. Let's go. You know, I don't care about the fear. I don't care about the apprehension. I'm not trying to talk myself out of it. I don't disable because let's call a spade a spade. We can disable absolutely everything. When the podcast comes out, somebody might be listening to this and somebody that has visceral uh, victim mentality might be like, well, he had a loving mom. I didn't. Oh, yeah. The podcast stopped, you know, because this is because this is and this is OK. But, you know, did you get 
beat up all the time? Did you get, you know, and so it doesn't matter. It's not about comparing and it's the, the, the most stupid thing we can do. But the bottom line is it, that's where you can catch yourself be, oh, I'm doing some of this. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's inter- unbeknownst to you, it's interfering with you. It's interfering with your pursuit of excellence. It's interfering with your optimization of your relationship. It's interfering with everything. The sooner you can get rid of that, and really that self-awareness and self-regulation piece is all you need. If I have self-awareness, and I know this behavior to be extremely destructive for myself and others, now all I have to do is to pay attention and to self-regulate when it happens. You know, and the the self-regulation piece, and we, we talked about that yesterday, but bring bring the prefrontal cortex back online, let the fear center release some of the fear and the anxiety that's associated with it. And how do we curb anxiety? We go into exploration. That's the only way to do it. Do the things, do the things that make you, that that raise the anxiety because you're going to realize that the anticipation of it is much worse than doing them. So incredibly powerful. Seriously, so powerful. I have a feeling you and I could probably chat for a really, really long time. <laughs> I have that feeling. Who like said I knew I knew yesterday? I was like, no, I definitely think there's something there. And then I I just knew it would very much align. I love everything that you have shared. And I will make sure everything is in the show notes. Where do you hang out the most for people to learn more about you? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in front of my computer, studying is worth. <laughs> but as far as social, say social media, for example, so my my Instagram account, which I'm sure will be linked to the yeah. you know the to the podcast, is uh, S L A V C C M D R. So Slav Cobra Commander, which was uh, a nickname I had on the team, and Slav is just my name, Seb Lavoie. But uh, yeah, S L A V C C M D R. And unfortunately, I spend way too much time there. <laughs> <laughs> got to learn a lot in a lot of, like I said it's so funny it's only been 24 hours but I love how this all came together um I love this connection and I think your story is so incredibly powerful that so many people can take some a nugget somewhere in all of those stories there's a nugget that you can use to create change in your life literally like that's just literally as simple as it can be so I love the conversation I have a question for you it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? I think having been forced to accept the prospect of death very early from a career perspective and from a life perspective really, really liberated me from fear, you know, and I'm not talking about being fearless. I'm talking about debilitating fear, fear that stifles you, fear that glues you to the floor, you know? And, um, and I do believe that that was an extremely liberating piece for me in the operational context, you know, not having, and I wasn't a cowboy or anything like that, but just not, not having that underlying constant fear all the time and just being able to address things with your wits and with your logic and, and using your brain when you're not in a, in a fear induced state where you're making, you know, irrational decisions. And so it really served me well professionally, but also personally. And it, it allowed me to just see life as what it is, a giant adventure where we should be seeking all kinds of different things. So at the end of it, when they see our bodies, they're like, yep, that one's done. There's nothing more in there. <laughs> I think it's an Irma Bombard quote. It's like, I want to slide into my grave saying I used every single thing I had. There was nothing left. <laughs> exactly. If there was another life, this guy isn't coming. 
<laughs> but yeah, I would say I would say this is my most valuable my most valuable lesson. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Sab. I have absolutely loved this conversation and I know it's going to resonate with so many people. Loved it as well. Hopefully we get a part two at some point. I think we will. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.